0: I would say as a startup founder, you're always trying to navigate a macro environment. Every year over the last four years, consumers have been really hard. So like you had COVID, then you had iOS changes, then you had supply chain issues, then you just had Silicon Valley Bank blow up. Like it's like the Hunger Games in the startup world right now. Let's see what else we can pull from them. But I would say that's part of being a startup founder. Like it's so different. They're always... Having to navigate a macro environment. And that's why you want to back resilient, resourceful founders who can respond to whatever the macro environment is, because you can't predict it.
1: Welcome into Studying Success. On this podcast, I interview entrepreneurs, investors, and CEOs who reveal their personal stories and advice for high school and college students on how to become successful in the business world. Today, we are joined by Katherine Kavanaugh, founder and managing partner at Capstar Ventures venture capital firm that invests in early stage startups. In this episode, we discuss how Catherine raised the first fund for Capstar, what it was like to go through COVID with Capstar, and what Catherine looks for in founders. Stick around to the end to hear Catherine's advice for anyone looking to pursue a career in VC. Here's the interview. Catherine, thank you so much for coming on Studying Success. How are you?
0: I'm doing great, Will. I really appreciate you having me on your podcast. I'm excited to talk with you.
1: So please tell us who you are and what you do.
0: I'm Catherine Cavanaugh. I'm the founder and managing partner of Capstar Ventures. It's a early stage fund focused on the next generation of innovative consumer companies based in Austin, Texas.
1: Could you tell us what Capstar Ventures is? Like what stage is it in? What companies mm-hmm. do you invest in?
0: So we invest nationwide in next generation consumer businesses at seed and series A. And we're typically looking at, is the founder solving their own pain point? And do they directly relate to and resemble their customer? Because that translates to authenticity with millennials and Gen Z. We also look at companies where they've identified a market that lacks innovation. So it could be something like Third Love Reinventing the Bra. We also look at category creators. So that includes something like Museum of Ice Cream, where they've created an entire category of immersive Instagram experiences. And then we also look at companies that an overlooked consumer. We'll look at companies that address that consumer as well.
1: And could you give us an example of an investment that has been particularly successful and how you met that business and all the way to how you invested in it?
0: There's a number of examples. I would say... One example is 13 Loon. So 13 Loon is a marketplace for Black and brand-owned beauty brands that apply to people of all color. So the two founders, Nikeo Greco and Patrick Herding, partnered together and wanted to create a plate of discovery for up-and-coming Black and brand-owned clean beauty brands. And they found that a lot of those smaller brands were not getting the attention or being discovered by consumers. So their thinking was, let's curate those brands. Let's create a marketplace for those brands. And in addition to selling direct-to-consumer, they also replaced Sephora at all JCPenney's nationwide. They house both direct consumer and they also have the JCPenney's rollout, which is now in all 600 JCPenney doors. And what's interesting about that business is there's so many companies in beauty. So trying to pick the one that's going to win the horse race, I think, is very challenging. And prior to launching Encounter Ventures, I invested with a family in New York City that did a lot in beauty. And so I prefer being in a marketplace for beauty, which is one thing that attracted me about 13 Loon. And I also like the fact that they're very determined not to recreate the ethnic aisle. So they wanted brands that people of all color can use. And the brands are split between 90% BIPOC and then 10% Ally Brands. So there's a number of brands. It could be anything from Goop to Barbara Sturm, where they've always created products for people of all color. So they're very focused on creating a leader and inclusive
1: beauty. What was their pitch and what made you invest?
0: I was originally introduced to Nakeo through my network. And when we first started talking, we probably talked for about a year. and. Ultimately, the capital that she wanted to take originally wasn't attractive to me because I'm very cognizant of who we're co-investing with and what that structure looks like. And, for example, like I tend to steer away from corporate VC. And I think corporations more or less should buy companies. It goes in and out of favor to have a corporate VC fund. So I talked to Nicaio for quite some time. There was a lot of interest from corporates on the beauty side. And my preference was I would prefer to raise around. And then if a corporation wants you, they can buy you. And so we just continued the dialogue. and then ultimately, we decided to invest, knowing that Nicko and Patrick are both successful founders. So they've had successful exits in the past. They're adult. They were very determined on getting to profitability and not being on a fundraising flywheel, which was very attractive to me. So while I'm investing in early stage venture, I tend to look through companies of the lens on how much capital do I think you're going to need to get to profitability, and I want them to get to profitability so that they own more of their business and they also come off the fundraising flywheel and they have more options. If they do need to raise capital, it just opens an entirely different set of investors when they are profitable. So I appreciated that 13 million was capital efficient and both had very strong relationships in the beauty industry. They were excellent. Patrick had previously built a large PR agency. So I also knew they have the skill sets internally on the marketing side. And then I liked the fact that you know, they're taking the noise out of so many different companies and curating what actually really resonates with today's consumer, what's efficacious, what should be had on the platform. And then I also like the fact that they were, had a signed deal with JCPenney. So that also meant it's in distribution. It grew over fourteen hundred percent in one year. Wow. It's pretty phenomenal.
1: Yeah. So what changes have you introduced to the company since investing?
0: I wouldn't say I've introduced changes. So that's usually more of a private equity play than a venture play. So I think the difference is in venture, you like, I really pride ourselves on building a true partnership with founders where you are with them in good times and you are with them in bad. And you are their cheerleader, but you may not always agree. Now, they run the business, and everyone in venture is a minority state, so you don't have control over certain decisions. But really, what you're aiming to do is influence companies based on the thousands of companies they've seen over the last 18 years in the startup world. So all those early-stage startups, regardless of whether it's consumer, tech, healthcare, they still have a similar journey very early on in the seed and series A stages. So, you're watching companies and recognizing, like, you see, there's a lot of pattern recognition around, hey, this is where I see the business going. And I also think we pride ourselves in adding value. So, what we do is we'll make strategic introductions to potential customers. We will send them other beauty brands we think should be on the platform. We will assist with hiring if necessary. A lot of what we do is strategic advice. So we typically tend to be the first call when things are not going well, too. So that's the call I want. Like, I want to know if something's not going well and how can I be a sounding board and what can we do to course correct. We help a lot with fundraising. So one of the things I love the most is helping my founders raise capital and fundraising is exhausting. And you're talking to a lot of people and founders are trying to run their startups and while fundraising. And so I want to shorten the time it takes to fundraise. I also want them to limit the amount of private company information in the public market. So I want them to be selective about who they're talking to. And then I'm also cognizant of, I want to invest with like-minded investors. So I want low ego, high integrity investors who are going to similarly roll up their sleeves and be value-add. I also like helping so that I can help say, hey, okay, this is a great investor. They bring relevant experience. It's complementary to the rest of the investors around the table. I think they'd be a great partner to join the team. So I would say probably those are the areas where we've added the most value. We don't necessarily come into companies and look to change that. We're just more looking to support their growth. And I also think that the responsibility of VC is to think strategically about where the company can go. Because oftentimes, I totally get it. The founders are in the weeds day to day. And I think to have someone else on your side who's thinking, okay, are there some other channels we could go to or just thinking bigger? okay, where should we be in five years? Who else do they need to know? And how else can we help that make their idea become a reality?
1: You said you want to limit the amount of information about the company in the private markets. Why is that so important? Like, why do you tell companies that?
0: You're still in a competitive environment. So you're cognizant of who are the competitors out there. And because it's private, it's harder to get access to information about how a company is doing is not public. I have seen investors take meetings to educate themselves on a market with no intention of engaging with the company. Or I've seen VCs, which I would never do, invest in startups in the same category almost as if to hedge their position, which that's a hedge fund strategy. I just think there's a strong conflict of interest there, but I don't think we should be doing in venture. And some people have great public personas and they build a big brand, but that doesn't mean they actually work with the companies. So I don't need that either. I want people that are actually
1: going to help. So what made you raise the fund for Capstar Ventures? What made you start Capstar?
0: I have been in venture capital since 2005. And I was at a Tep quartile fund for seven years in Palo Alto, followed by a private equity fund in San Francisco. And then I went back to a family office in New York, where that's really where I cut my teeth and learned that I felt like there was a dearth of institutional value add investors in the early stage consumer. And I realized that I wanted to have my own fund. I had been making money for Other people, and I really wanted to back myself, and I put sealers out into my network, and ultimately, Utimco introduced me to three of my anchor investors, and I was looking also to launch a fund off the coast. I had been in Palo Alto in the Bay Area for about fourteen years. I was by coastal with New York for about three, and in twenty eighteen, I decided I wanted to launch my own fund. I wanted to back myself, and I wanted to be off the coast, and. Austin was quite interesting to me because I saw a lot of parallels back in 2018 between Austin and Palo Alto and realized that there's a number of similar elements, but more importantly, there's a natural risk-taking mindset to Texans. And I think you need that risk-taking mindset to actually foster a startup community and foster a venture community. Obviously, Austin blew up during COVID, but... Before that, I just felt, okay, I could do this. And I love the second century located. That's how I picked the location. More so how I picked the fund was I just repeatedly kept seeing a dearth of institutional value-add capital and realized I want to launch a bond in this space and I want to support these founders because I just don't think that they're getting into the right value-add networks that are helping to accelerate their growth if they're only raising capital from most or like a lot of high net worth individuals, which is great, but it's also... It's a different fundraising strategy.
1: What was it like to raise your first fund?
0: Raising a fund is very different than raising capital for a startup. And it is certainly not for the faint of heart. It is, typically it takes between 18 and 24 months for a first-time fund to raise their first fund. So ours took about 18 months, but that was also in part because of COVID. I moved to Texas in January of 19. I launched fundraising in April of 19. I did the first close in August of 19. I did a second close in February of 2020, and then COVID hit. And I was really fortunate. My anchor investors had set me up with a line of credit, so I was able to invest while fundraising, which was very unique. And that also was quite interesting for people because by the time the fund closed officially in 2021, I already had nine companies in the fund, and they were investing into companies that I was holding from dating back to 2018. So they had already seen a lot of performance, which I think was interesting. But fundraising is challenging because for a first-time fund, you typically need to be focusing on family offices and high net worth individuals. Most institutions, you're far too small for them to consider you. And you're asking someone to make a bet on the blind pool of capital. Not so much in my case, because I was investing while fundraising. Essentially, you're asking them to bet on you and your judgment and your deal flow and your network and your ability to create equity value for companies over time. But you just don't know, like you could have 12 meetings with someone and they want to put in $100,000 and then you could have one lunch with someone and they want to put in 2 million. So there's just no rhyme or reason. It's a sales process, but ultimately people want to know, do they like you? Do they trust you? Do they believe in you? And do they think that? Are they interested in the strategy that you're implementing too?
1: And how did you convince your limited partners to invest in your fund?
0: I have a track record. I had a great portfolio as we were building it. i very persistent. And I do think that to some LPs, it mattered that it was a woman-owned fund. There's very few women-owned funds in the U.S. and globally. And I do think that In my particular sector, women buy 85% of all consumer goods. And so naturally, when you're looking at consumer businesses, you're looking at it to say, is this a nice to have or is this a must have? Is this actually something that can scale to the masses? And is this a sustainable business model? Does this have clear unit economics? Do I think the founders coachable? I think it's whether do they think that you're going to be able to generate the return for their money and do they believe in your strategy? So it's not so different. Like It's NELP. What are they looking for? You know, Do they want more exposure to venture? Do they want to back a woman-owned fund in Austin, Texas? You don't necessarily know, but you're hoping for a yes every time.
1: You keep saying that it's mainly that people want to invest in you, in you as a person. So is there anything you can do to make yourself seem more trustworthy or seem better?
0: It's not that similar to what I'm looking for in founders. When you invest in a startup, you're entering into a marriage. You're going to be with these founders for seven to 10 years. And that's the same with a fund. And so similarly, I want authenticity. I want transparency. I want low ego, high integrity. I want straight answers. If you don't know something, I want you to just tell me I don't know. I don't need you to bluff it or it's okay if you don't know the answer. I'm very candid and I'm also very honest. And I will tell you exactly I'm much more direct than the average female. I grew up with four brothers. I was an engineer for seven years before I went back to business school. I've always been the only woman in the room. And so I'm very comfortable being the only woman in the room. And I think I'm just more candid and more direct than the average female. And what I've been told by some of my founders is that I am able to build rapport quickly with people because I'm so straightforward. It's more that there's just a natural trust being built. Too. So there's not a persona, there's not a facade. I think it's more presenting, hey, this is really exciting what I'm working on and I'd love for you to be part of it. And if it works for you, great. And if it doesn't, great too. You're coming out of it from a place and I really think that there's a gap in the market and I want to solve that gap. So I think it's more just, it's a personality, I suppose. Like, I'm not a salesy person. I'm going to tell you straight up how it is and probably undersell and overdeliver is probably like most women. That's usually what we do.
1: And you mentioned that you had to raise your fund during COVID. How did that economic environment impact your fund? You said you opened the line of credit, but what was it like to raise a fund there? And also, how is this? Sorry, I'll let you answer that one first.
0: I was fortunate because when COVID hit, we of our nine portfolio companies, we had very little exposure to brick-and-mortar retail. So we had strong digitally native brands with high gross margin, very strong customer loyalty rates, and addressing products that people needed and wanted. And so our company has actually fared very well during COVID. And I one company lost revenue overnight because it's a ticketed experience. But I wasn't ever worried about them because they're hustlers and they're scrappy and they're very resourceful. And during that time, my only concern there was that there were a lot of predatory investors around the table during that time. They needed to raise money. And I worked really hard with them to ensure that we brought on really excellent investors who do not want majority control. So I wanted to make sure we had investors around the table who were partners because I wasn't really worried about that business. I was like, they're still the leader in the space. And once we get through this, they're gonna rebound. The rest of my companies, everyone did what they needed to do. Like a number of my CEOs didn't take salary. People were creative in how to continue to support the business, but overall I wasn't so worried about them. Because to what I said before, we had very little exposure to brick and mortar retail. We were only in, I believe we had exposure to Whole Foods, which was open. I would say as a startup founder, you're always trying to navigate a macro environment. Every year over the last four years, consumers have been really hard. So like you had COVID, then you had iOS changes, then you had supply chain issues, then you just had Silicon Valley Bank blow up. Like, It's like the Hunger Games of the startup world right now. Let's see what else we can pull from them. But I would say that's part of being a startup founder. Like, it's so different. They're always having to navigate in macro environment. And that's why you want to back resilient, resourceful founders who can respond to whatever the macro environment is because you can't predict it.
1: And in addition to being resilient and resourceful, what do you look for in a CEO and what do you look for in companies?
0: What I really look for is the founder solving their own pain point and do I think they that this is Truly differentiated with a mode around the business. So is it a sustainable business model, strong unit economics, high customer repeat rates? I look for, I like digitally native brands because they build that one-to-one relationship with their customer and they own all of their data, which informs a lot of decisions on product development and marketing and supply chain. And ultimately, I look to see, do I think this can scale to the masses? And by that, I mean, do I believe I can see the heat map of adoption across the U.S.? So it might start on the coast. And obviously, that has definitely changed with COVID and so the migration of people. But it's more about, can I see the heat map of adoption where this can become a household name or even a global name versus it doesn't necessarily have to sell in Walmart when I say scale to the masses. So... You're looking to build a large business and you're looking for something that's sustainable. Do I think that it's actually is a venture-backable business versus most companies in consumer are lifestyle companies? And they really should just have a high net worth individual and they should bootstrap it. It doesn't make it a bad business. It's just not a business that's right for
1: sort of the venture fund returns that we're looking for. What do you think that you're best at and what makes you good at that thing?
0: So I think I am best at Superhuman Connector. So I am constantly, like I collect people. I have friends from preschool. I probably still have like 15 friends from preschool. I always meet people. I'm very intellectually curious. I never underestimate anyone. You never know who someone is or what their story is. And it wasn't until I actually had a founder tell me this. Anytime I need someone, I run a Rolodex in my head of who I think that they should meet. And it's because I think of, oh, there's a synergy. Like you really need to connect with that person because the two of you together can solve a problem for each other. They could help each other. And I'm really cognizant of it. And I do it in my sleep. Like, I'm just constantly doing connections, like connecting the dots at a higher level. And I think that's a skill set that's very valuable in venture, but not necessarily, like, I didn't really know I did it until I went to Palo Alto after business school. And I had so many founders be like, yeah, how your brain works is not. Most species don't do that. Like, even companies I might pass on, like for various reasons, I still want to help them. Yeah. I might talk to someone and be like, hey, this isn't a fit for us right now for X line and but there's two other investors I think you should talk to. And actually, you should talk to this company as a potential new channel for you. Like, I just like paying it forward and helping. And I believe that it comes back to you tenfold.
1: Do you have any advice for kids in either high school or college that are looking to potentially pursue a path in VC?
0: I would say... I'm very much interested in where the world is going in the next five to 10 years and less so about where the world is today. Like I'm investing into the future. And I think being intellectually curious is really important and having humility around like you just never know when you're going to meet someone with an interesting idea. And it doesn't matter where they grew up, where they went to school, you know, what socioeconomic, but it just doesn't matter. Like a good idea can go from but I also think that venture is very much an apprenticeship. So I think what's been interesting to watch over the last three years is everyone seems to be launching a venture fund. And the much better is just because you've been making angel investments doesn't necessarily mean you would know how to like actually run a venture fund and allocate capital. And I think you just don't know if you're good at venture for many years because it takes so long to see. One, it takes a long time to learn all the pattern recognition around when you work with so many founders and you see all these patterns, it also creates that gut instinct that when you see a deal, you're like, oh yeah, there's something here. I think it's valuable to work with experienced VCs and learn the pattern recognition, learn the apprentice mindset. Apprentice mindset is really valuable in this space. So it's like the slowest way to make money. So like everyone reads about it and thinks it's this amazing career and I love it. It's very intoxicating when you're meeting with all these founders who are going to change the world and you know about companies five years before anyone else does. So all the companies I know today, I'm like, how do they not know about them? But it's not a household name quite yet. And then it's super rewarding when you meet people who says, oh, my God, I know every company in your portfolio and I use all these products. This is incredible. But I would say, like, it takes a long time to make money in this industry. You're not necessarily doing it for that.
1: Catherine, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been great.
0: Yeah, thank you so much, Will. I really love what you're doing, and I have so many people that you need to talk to to add to this fabulous podcast, so thank you again.
1: As always, thank you for listening, and please make sure you follow Studying Success to get notified when new podcasts come out. Also, please leave a review and send the podcast to your friends and family to show them what you learned. It would greatly help the show. I'm Will Burkhart, and you've been listening to Studying Success.